IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest IB Talk, the insurance industry's global podcast brought to you by Insurance Business. I'm IB's managing editor, Paul Lucas, and today I'm going to let you into a little secret. Uh, One of the most popular articles on our website over the last two years has been a very simple guide that we wrote entitled, What is an MGA? It's the sort of term that you wouldn't expect the average Joe or Jane to be searching for on Google. Uh, It's very much a term for those within the industry. So is it possible that those inside the insurance sector are not quite sure themselves what an MGA is? Or is it simply the case that it's a fresh term to newcomers who are trying to wrap their heads around the industry? Well, if you're going to answer the question, what is an MGA? And you're also going to find out what's happening in the market and where the business model goes next. You may not be able to find a better man to assist you than my guest today. He's the CEO of the Managing General Agents Association, the MGAA, Mike Keating. Uh, Mike, welcome to IB Talk. Very good morning, Paul. Great to be here. So, Mike, um, let's delve into the, the MGA sector in, in just a minute. But first of, first of all, I, I want you to tell me a little bit about your insurance career to date, because um, your list of credentials includes time with, with AXA, with UK General, with Claims Limited, uh, before moving into the role that you're in now. Uh, tell us, first of all, what brought you into the insurance industry? Well, that's, that's a great question. And uh, I'd probably sort of start off, it was probably in black and white when I joined the industry from, from that perspective. But uh, I've been in the industry over 40 years. Uh, I was always sort of academic. So if I was going to go down one route, it would be into sort of office stroke financial services as opposed to, uh, you know, the, the building or sort of uh, contracting sort of uh, uh, services industry. Uh, joined uh, the Prudential actually when I was 16, sort of straight from school, uh, and has effectively been in the insurance industry since uh, I was 16. Uh, and one of the sort of the advantages, probably, and I would always sort of underline this through luck and design. So uh, I was never in a position where I could sort of, from the age of 16, sort of plot my career path. But I've been quite fortunate insofar that, you know, over that period of time, I've had the experience of uh, all aspects in uh, what would be perceived as the insurance value chain. Uh, So that's included underwriting, uh, business development, uh, working in large insurers, uh, working for brokers, working for MGAs, which, you know, we'll we'll come on to, uh, you know, being uh, exposed to the, you know, the claim side of the business. When I was uh, running an MGA, we also had a claims aspect to that uh, from that perspective since small companies you know my last role before i joined the mgaa was a, a business called claims uh, which was an mga startup so I, i've seen uh, been close to sort of the uh, how can i put it the the funding side of uh, of starting a, a business which is, again was extremely interesting uh so you know i like to think that you know I, i've got uh you know some you know reasonable insight and knowledge of both the challenges and opportunities across all of that value chain, uh, you know, which has given me sort of, uh, you know, a great background in terms of the role I'm doing now. And with you having worked across the, the value chain, as you put it, Mike, um, I'll put, put you on the spot a little bit now. Tell me which sort of aspect did you enjoy the most across, across those different divisions and, and maybe which, which do you think is the toughest as well? I think that's a great question. I, I think 
you know, there are great, great areas to all of the value chain. So if I take my experience when I was working for sort of large organizations, you know, AXA in particular and, and companies before then, because I spent most of my early career in companies, you know, they, they, they always were fantastic sort of uh, in terms of training and development. You know, they really sort of encouraged sort of staff and they put on and allowed you to go on sort of fantastic courses to sort of, you know, shape you as a, as a, as a, both as an individual and as a manager within those organizations as you, as you sort of grew into those particular roles from that perspective. Um, you know, moving away from the company market, I found when I moved into sort of broken stroke, you know, MGA, what I really enjoyed was sort of the cutting edge of those sort of organizations you know, where that, you know, what I always call the cause and effect impact. So that if you made a decision, you know, on that morning, then effectively, you know, that the, the execution of that decision was more or less done immediately. Whereas in sort of larger organizations, you know, that doesn't exist. You know, that, you know, takes tends to take time for those decisions to sort of, you know, to flow through to, to you know, your, the end the end result of what you're trying to achieve. So that cut, that cut and thrust, you know, sort of really appealed to me uh, from that perspective. Uh, you know, the, the, you know, was there one favorite bit? You know, I would say probably no, Paul, to be honest, because I think, you know, my experience having you know, the opportunity to sample all of those particular areas, you know, has, has enabled me to sort of, you know, move into this role with a level of experience, which I hope, you know, will, will benefit our membership as we, as we go forward. You know, there's good and bad in, in, in all those, you know, at the end of the day. But I suppose if I was, as you said, put me on the spot, I think the cutting edge, piece you know uh was something I, I really enjoyed and and uh you know probably would say I probably would like to have moved into that area slightly quicker than than I did yeah interesting and, and obviously like you said you've been in the, the industry for about 40 years so it would be impossible for me to just ask you about all of the changes that have, have happened during that time but if you were to sort of pinpoint one or two that you've seen perhaps the, the biggest changes during this period what would they be I think this. I think the one the one thing which everyone would talk to, talk about is uh, is obviously uh, technology, uh, and you know the rapid increase in terms of the use of technology, uh, both in the provision of uh, products uh, to the end customers, uh, the use of technology in terms of refining of uh, risk selection and pricing, uh, you know uh, the the way that frictional cost has been removed from the industry uh by with the introduction of sort of technology you know you've got a whole sort of ecosystem you know under a sort of an umbrella of technology which has touched every part of the value chain which i've just sort of you know i've sort of uh, commented on uh so that would be the biggest change you know I, I you know with my 40 years if i go back to when i was 16 you know everything was written down on pieces of paper you had sort of files all over your desk, you know, you did renewals by paper, etc. really showing my age here. And then you move across, you know, those sort of period of years where now, you know, products, you know, rating, risk selection, you know, the introduction of AI for underwriting, you know, it, it's a fantastic sort of step forward. So I, I couldn't, I couldn't move any away from uh, the use of technology as, as being the biggest change. Uh, but the one thing I would say, which I, I'm really pleased about, is that despite that sort of rapid and continually rapid uh, improvements and, and in, with the introduction of technology, you know, the, the personal and people nature 
of the insurance industry has, has still remained. It's still extremely important in terms of that that interaction and, and relationship building. Uh, and I see no reason why they know that won't continue for the next 40, 50 years whilst technology continues to evolve and, and improve, um, you know, the industry overall. And I was going to ask you, Mike, as well, about how you see the industry sort of developing in, in the years ahead. And I think maybe you touched on, on one of the points there when you, you spoke about technology and, and AI. Is, is that sort of how you see the industry developing? I think it does, and and I think I think what will happen is that it will become you know a hybrid in certain segments, you know, both in the UK and globally. I think you know the the use of AI regarding risk selection and underwriting uh, will will act as a support mechanism for uh, underwriting of particular risks. Uh, certainly, if you look at larger risks, where you know risk management and AI can assist in that. But I don't believe at this point in time that, you know, both UK and globally, that that will replace the underwriter completely because the underwriter has the level of experience, knowledge, and I would call it the sniff test when they look at risk presentations of certain types of size of risks, which I don't think can be replicated by technology. But I think what you have to accept that the, the lower you go down, and if you look at SME across the UK and, again, in other sort of territories across the world, uh, that at the lower end of, of small commercial, you know, my view, that's very much, you know, the, the upper end of personal lines insurance. So the way that AI and, you know, pricing optimization, risk selection and technology is used for the for personal, you know, motor and home business, uh, you know, the small shopkeeper, uh, you know, that sits just above that. And, and even now the industry is using technology and, and AI in terms of the underwriting and, and, and you know, the, the premium application for those sort of type risks. So I see, Paul, that that, you know, it will be evolution as to revolution where, you know, that technology will continue to, for one of a phrase, creep into the S of SME, but it will become a key tool in the underwriting of, let's say, the M and the E of SME, you know, both UK and globally, I believe, going, going forward. Uh, you know, fundamentally, can we see a FTSE 100 organisation with its risk management programme being underwritten by AI in isolation? I would suggest no. But will, will that provide an added value to what underwriters already do as part of the risk management programme? Yes, it will. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to, to see how it develops. Um, just want to go back to, um, I guess, my introduction there when I, I spoke about what is an MGA, and and, and I'd, I'd like you, if you can, to just explain to the uninitiated, uninitiated uh, the difference between an, an MGA and an insurer, and then tell us as well a little bit about your role as obviously the CEO of the MGAA and, and what that involves. Yeah, so so again, you know, very very important question, uh, and you know, we know. In the UK, you know, MGAs are seen as MGAs and we know that you have sort of underwriting agencies and other sort of, you know, affectionate labels across sort of the globe. But effectively, an, M an MGA, the key thing here is acting as an agent of the insurer. So its fiduciary duty is towards the insurer uh, and effectively the insurer partners with the MGA by providing its capital or its balance sheet for that MGA to underwrite 
you know, business on its behalf. Uh, and it's really key here that there's a distinction between an MGA who's operating on behalf of an insurer as opposed to a broker who may be actually operating a scheme on behalf of an insurer. A broker's role is quite rightly is to look after its customer and its client. And therefore, its duty is first and foremost to its client in terms of ensuring that that client's insurance program, premium risk management, you know, is, is you know, fit for purpose at, at a minimum. Where you're an MGA, you're looking at business on behalf and through the lens of an insurer, because effectively your role is to provide underwriting returns, positively underwriting returns to that insurer. So if I then drill down another level as an example, you know, you'll have an insurer who will say, for a variety of reasons, uh, we want to write professional indemnity insurance. But what we don't want to do as an insurer, we don't want to actually invest internally by either uh, bringing in, you know, a, a team of professional indemnity experts, building a system to support that team within our very large infrastructure. So the option we have is that we can go and provide our balance sheet, our capacity to an existing team, an MGA, who've got expertise, uh, both in underwriting, operations, governance, good data, real forensic data, a real understanding of the market and how uh, professional indemnity works in, in whatever territory that is, uh, good distribution, excellent governance and, and oversight and controls. And we as an insurer will effectively provide capacity and capital to that MGA to underwrite professional indemnity insurance on our behalf. Uh, and and this, this gives insurers the opportunity to go into, you know, new markets uh, without their own sort of internal investment by supporting MGAs, getting insight and expertise into markets they wouldn't have had before. But the key thing is, is that those insurers will only partner with expert MGAs who demonstrate all the things I've just articulated, but especially underwriting expertise in that particular sector. Interesting that you talked about having uh, underwriting expertise in a, in a particular sector, because I think with with carriers sort of taking the brunt of, of the, the COVID-19 claims impact and, and, and focusing on perhaps some more secure business, has this opened up opportunities for MGAs in a way in terms of, you know, kind of focusing in on, on those specialisms, those niches? Uh, it's been it's been a mixed bag. So so if you look at the mature markets, you know, globally around who support the MGA uh, model, uh, then effectively, you know, insurers, you know, are providing capacity, uh, looking for areas where they can grow their underwriting earnings by partnering with MJs in sectors which you know they have got particularly interest in or or where most likely the MGA has, has demonstrated to the insurer that they've got that underwriting expertise and distribution to support that and the governance and controls which we just we just talked about. Sort of going specifically around sort of the, the COVID and the BI case, uh, without doubt, you know, one of the challenges which that has brought up for the relationship between insurers and MGAs and, you know, brokers, again, who have schemes, is the fact that, you know, a large proportion of the indemnity 
uh, spend on the COVID BI case was where, you know, the wordings were led by MGAs or scheme type business. Now, this is a clear partnership approach. And I think what this has highlighted, especially for the insurers themselves, is that the level of due diligence uh, and the partnership with MGAs going forward probably has to be far more close and aligned around, you know, the wordings which are being, uh, you know, the wordings of which underpin the, the particular products to ensure that there are no future sort of COVID stroke BI, um, you know, uh, incidences. Uh, I, you know, and talking to a number of insurers or our members, talking to MGA members, what this actually means in real life is that the onboarding of new of new MGA insurer partnerships may take a bit longer because of the due diligence you know required around around wordings uh, to make sure that you know things don't slip between the gaps, which clearly has happened. Uh, when you know the COVID BI case sort of went to uh, the Supreme Court. Yeah, obviously MGAs are, are playing a, a really crucial role right now. But do you think it's it's become almost necessary for them to have a, a real specialism, a real sort of focus for the business? Yeah, that, I think that's that's absolutely right. I think the key thing, if you look at it through an insurer lens, is that there has to be an MGA has to demonstrate an area where it's adding additional value. There's no point replicating what, you know, their insurer partner is already doing. It has to show, you know, uh, added value both in, you know, in the main and first and foremost through underwriting expertise in a particular product sector, niche sort of area, you know, specialism, which the insurer says well, that just adds real value to, to us as, a, as, a, as an insurer sort of a carrier. You know, if the MGA is not demonstrating that it's adding value uh, you know, through products, through uh, underwriting, through, you know, in some cases distribution, uh, then effectively the insurer quite rightly would say, well, why why are we doing this and not doing doing this ourselves? So do you think then that there are perhaps going to be some MGAs that are going to particularly struggle in this present environment, if, especially if they've not got that specific uh, expertise? I think the, 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 the challenge for MGAs, will be that if, again, quite sort of bluntly, if they, if they can't demonstrate value or differentiation uh, to their insurers and their, you know, their, their partners, then, then they will struggle, you know, because, you know, having worked for large insurers, you know, the, the first thing you would look at if you're, you know, one of the first things you look at, certainly just past the underwriting expertise of any MGA proposition would be, well, where is this adding value to what we already do and, and what is the differentiation it has given us. Uh, and they are they are the key sort of, you know, levers which, you know, uh, the good MGAs, you know, you know provide and, and continue to provide. And, the, you know, you spoke there about the, the good MGAs and there has been criticism in, in recent, recent years of just the sheer volume of MGAs emerging on the market and that um, not all of them were sort of offering, you know, the, the level of support that a broker would expect, for example. Do you, do you think that this is, is still an issue? Are there perhaps too many MGAs out there and, and some of them just not being up to scratch? I think, I think you know, we in the UK currently, you know, we are, and I think this is reflected, you know, across, you know, globally as well. We, you know, we're in a in a pretty tough market market it, there's a 
uh, a really strong rating environment. You know, capacity is contracting in sort of some areas, especially in sort of financial lines. Uh, and yes, some MGAs have had you know particular challenges in in during during this particular time. However, you know, I always come back to the point that an MGA, an MGA, if an MGA is surprised in terms of getting sort of you know the, the fictional tap on the shoulder from its insurer partner in in regard to its underwriting performance, its risk selection you know, in terms of the, the direction of travel of its portfolio's performance, then in my view, it's not it's not a, a reputable MGA because an MGA, going back to my example, when I, when I explain what an MGA is and does, is there to represent the insurer and to actually add value, including financial value, to what that insurer, that insurer provides in its capacity. So, you know, you know, these sort of conversations around underwriting performance, value these are things which an mga should be looking at you know every single day in terms of through its you know use of its forensic data to to ensure that it's providing value upwards which is to its capacity partner as well as providing value downstream to its broker distribution and ultimately its customers you know those mgas who don't do that you know they will fail you know it's as simple as that We've we talked obviously uh, about the sort of the, the weaker MGAs, but let's talk about the, the stronger ones here and, and tell us what the advantage the advantages are for, for brokers that are, are working with MGAs over insurers and, and, and when perhaps they would, would choose to work with an MGA over an insurer. I'm guessing that one of the, the big advantages is, is sort of the responsiveness to, for brokers. Absolutely. So, you know, if you look for, a, again, using the phrase for a broker lens, you know, obviously the, the specialism you know, be it sort of in product, uh, you know, niche niche areas where MGAs absolutely sort of shine and, and and really really come to come come through as a shining light. You know, you know that's where brokers you know are attracted to sort of MGAs and how MGAs can provide you know real bespoke specialist products for their customers. So you know that that's that's already established. The, the point you make around responsiveness, you know, against insurers, you know, I think that came very clearly through, you know, from last March, you know, when we went into, especially in the UK, in terms of the lockdown, the fact that MGAs were able to display a level of agility and responsiveness, both in terms of how they adjusted their products so quickly, uh, how they adjusted their sort of operational model so quickly to in fact offer to their broker distribution more as a seamless transition, you know, when went into lockdown and all their staff would have gone to working from home, which really resulted in both uh, a lot of MGA, especially my members, sort of commenting that not only did their retention levels increase on business, but they both expanded their distribution reach because brokers, you know, just, you know, sort of went to MGAs because of the level of service and responsiveness. Uh, but they also had, you know, far more new business sort of went their route at the same time. Now, that's not, you know, a criticism of the insurers. What that is, is just a, a, a key fact that, you know, MGAs have got more agility and can adjust and and, and move their model far quicker than a, than, than a large insurer can. And that's just a a fact of life and, and and that's why brokers very quickly uh because they clearly you know want to 
move and adjust to their customers' needs, you know, you know, move towards the, the MGAs in, in terms of meeting those customers' requirements. Yeah, I guess it kind of comes back again, sort of full circle to, to having those specialisms again. And um, I mean, just talk to us a little bit about um, where you sort of see the, the MJ model heading next. Are there any sort of particular innovations within the sector or, uh, you know, particular paths that you see the, the MGAs uh, taking going forward? I think I think what MGAs are very, very good at is that they are they have fantastic uh, relationships with their broker distribution uh, they partner with brokers distributions to look at sort of uh, customer buying habits, customer sort of patterns, the need to introduce or adjust existing products uh, to meet, you know, the those changing customer uh, habits. You know, you look at the gig economy, you know, which is sort of, you know, exploded over the last, let's say, sort of five years, maybe beyond that. You know, MGAs are you know are quite uh, you know prevalent in in that sort of uh, gig economy by providing sort of agile type products to meet those sort of customers. Uh, so I think that will continue. I think MGAs will always be the first movers and first adopters of new products because of that sort of closeness to through their brokers to the end customer and those end requirements. Uh, they have that sort of innovation embedded in them. You know, one of the key things a lot of a lot of MGAs have uh, staff, certainly underwriting and product sort of management staff from insurers. So you know they and they move to the MGA sort of um, community because they want the ability to react quickly and be able to produce products and solutions uh, at that sort of you know coalface. Whereas that they did it with insurers, but probably took a lot longer to actually get that speed to market. So I, I can see that very sort of continuing to be very, very successful sort of MGAs. And, and part of that will come through the MGA sort of insure tech sort of uh, channel. Uh, and again, I come back to when we talked about technology, you know, I think MGAs are continuing to embrace uh, technology. Uh, again, they don't have necessarily, uh, you know, what can be quite a long winded approach to adopt and embed technology sort of uh, changes which insurers have and that's only because insurers have got legacy systems so it's it's more challenging for them you know mgas have that agility and innovation to adopt and embrace sort of new technology very quickly uh which gives them a competitive advantage in the market so i think a combination of sort of new product specialisms uh all based around you know both economy and, and customer sort of buying buying habits aligned with uh, how technology can make that speed to market far quicker. And also that technology giving real insight, real insight into underwriting, risk selection, pricing, because that, that's the key for MGAs. The more insight they get to refine risk selection, uh, and pricing, you know, that will make them, you know, their longevity, you know, assured and also be far more consistent in their underwriting performance. Yeah, Mike, I think you've done a, a terrific job today of uh, explaining the MGA model and, and, and talking to us about how the market is shaping up. Uh, if anybody does want to sort of reach out to you and, and find out a little bit more or, or just sort of continue the conversation, how can they get in touch? Great. That's a great opportunity. So they can more than happy to contact me directly. So they can contact me at uh, michael.keating 
at mgaa.co.uk and I'd be more than happy to have any conversation, talk about the the association uh, or the MGAA community uh, in totality. We really look forward to that. And, and Mike, another conversation they, they might want to have with you is, is, is you're a big sports fan, at, uh, a Manchester United fan, I believe. Yeah, to my sins. And, and uh, I'm sure anyone listens to say, well, yeah, we can tell by his accent that he's clearly not from uh, from Manchester. So that that's something from uh, I picked up from my sort of late sort of uh, grandfather. Uh, and uh, I will always say that I followed through them through thick and thin, both when they got relegated to the old second division, which was many, many moons ago. Uh, we are in the process of uh, rebuilding as a as a club. So uh, especially with the uh, European Super League and, and all the noise going around around American owners currently. So it's, it's interesting times, but having been through them over over sort of over 50 years as a supporter, then uh, I'm, I'm sure I'll, I'll continue with them to, uh, to I go in the ground, no doubt, Paul. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm actually a Liverpool fan myself, but we'll try and we'll try and be. I'm surprised. Like I'm that. surprised. We're, I'm surprised we're talking to each other. For that. <laughs> <laughs> but Mike, in fact, just just for the sake of people who are listening to the, to this um, at the time of recording, uh, of course, we're just a, a few days um, after Manchester United and Liverpool were due to play to each other, uh, and of course, that the game was postponed um, on the back of a sort of a pitch invasion by the fans, some some very sort of strong protests against the the owners of. Of Manchester United, what what are your thoughts on on the European Super League? Uh, well, I think clearly, clearly, when they were having those secretive talks, the one key person missing in that room was a uh, a very competent PR person, uh, because you know clearly that announcement without any sort of PR strategy, whether that was deliberate, I don't know, but uh, that was a glaring miss because it it folded as you would know, Paul, within forty eight hours. I think actually, if the proposition had included, uh, you know, you know what we all like, which is um, uh, both success uh, recognition and failure recognition, so there would have been sort of promotion relegation. I think we may still be talking about it now, but to actually sort of present a closed shop, where actually you know there was you know no sort of penalty for poor performance. You know, you were basically guaranteed, what is it, you know, the 300 million a season, I think, which was the JP Morgan sort of projection for each club. I think it was never going to never gonna land uh, properly here, certainly in the UK, because, and, and I think, you know, the fans have really spoken, as, as we have seen sort of from the pitches across all the, the fans of the six clubs who, who sort of were involved. Uh, so I think that the you know, PR disaster, uh, you know, the format, absolute disaster. Will it rear its head again? Um, I suspect unless there's ownership changes across those six clubs, uh, I would suspect that it will come round again in, in, in some other form because uh, clearly their desire to take a larger share uh, of the pot, you know, hasn't gone away. I don't think despite the fact that the ESL has uh, failed at its first hurdle. And I think that the biggest question to come out of this, Mike, is is how Tottenham were included in the six. <laughs> I wouldn't dis- I wouldn't disagree with that at all. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think purely I think purely because they have a lovely stadium. I think that was that was the only, that was the only <laughs> criteria. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm sure anyone listening, Paul, who's a Tottenham fan, won't won't, won't appreciate that comment. (laughs) But I I just make it clear that you made that comment and not me. I, I really appreciate your time, Mike. I think you've uh, given us a, a lot to take away from, from today. Um, so thank you very, very much again for joining us. Uh, to everybody listening, uh, we hope you've enjoyed it and uh, you, you'll join us again next week here on IB Talk. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.